A woman walking alone, honey, hand in hand I'm thinking of your mama when you're thinking of another man But you can go ahead if you want to Cause I ain't got no papers on you No, I don't, I ain't got no papers on myself Hello and welcome to episode 1090 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Hi, I'm Jeff Sullivan. Fangraphs joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hi. I was trying something new. I was trying for Effectively Wild, not Effectively Wild. I thought I was maybe <laughs> over-enunciating. Yeah, you're, you're taking feedback from the fans. That's right. I listen to the people <laughs> and I incorporate it into my production. Uh, <laughs> Apparently you are... Uh... You're a problem for people who listen to podcasts at like two times speed. I think your your speech pattern is pretty quick. <laughs> it but, has never uh, occurred to me to do that. Is that do no. You, do you listen to podcasts like that? I listen to podcasts at like 1.1 with the silences cut out. So it speeds it up very slightly, but you couldn't even necessarily tell that it is faster than real time speed. Once it starts getting up to like 1.5 or something, I just have trouble comprehending what's going on or, or internalizing the information maybe it's something that you get used to after a while and it certainly helps you plow through the podcast backlog so i understand why people do it but yeah i've never become conditioned to quite that speed i feel like you would lose some of what's intended to be conveyed by speech patterns sometimes there are right. dramatic pauses inserted for a reason <laughs> it just skipped right yeah. over but do people i don't know how many people you've met that listen to podcasts <laughs> like this but do they express shock and astonishment at what your voice is actually like <laughs> yeah sometimes i i hear that yeah it's uh, usually i'm the slower speaker so people wish that there could be like custom speeds where uh <laughs> they could listen to you at a slower speed and and boost me i think but yeah people have told me that i don't look anything like i sound like that i get a lot so yeah Okay, so do you have anything in the way of banter? Because I have a list of what looks like about 11 different things to talk about. <laughs> All right. Yeah, this is, a, this is a tough time because this is our last podcast before the trade deadline, most likely, or the last one that will be published before the trade deadline. So we could do a bunch of trade speculation, but it would be instantly out of date and, and irrelevant. But maybe we'll do some. I don't know what you have in store. Maybe that's one of your 11 things. But I guess we could briefly talk about a couple notable things from the last couple of days, like Adrian Beltre's on Deck Circle moving. And I just wanted to say a, a word in praise of humorless umpires, because <laughs> they are the people who make these moments happen, right? Like with with apologies to Dale Scott, umpires are the straight men of baseball, right? They just kind of come in and they enforce the rules. And every now and then you see him crack a smile at something, but often they are the ones who are enabling this kind of viral moment where a player does something humorous because in ordering Adrian Beltre to stand in the on-deck circle, in this instance, Jerry Davis, I, I don't know why he picked this moment to tell Beltre to do that. Obviously, players are very often, maybe even more often than not, not standing in the on-deck circle because they want to get a better view of the pitcher or whatever their reasons are. So this is clearly not enforced. I don't know why Davis decided to enforce it this time. Maybe Beltre was farther over than usual. If anyone has earned a little leeway with where he stands, it's probably Adrian Beltre. But anyway, not only did 
Davis make this order to Beltre to stay in the on-deck circle, but then when Adrian Beltre did one of the funniest things of the season (laughs) and one of the funniest things of a very funny career, and while making eye contact with Jerry Davis, (laughs) dragged the on-deck circle over to where Beltre had been standing and then stood in it, Davis was not amused by this at all, and so he ejected Beltre before he even got up to the plate there, and that really created the humor of the moment. Like, if he hadn't ordered Beltre to stand in the on-deck circle, we never get this moment. If he had seen the humor in what Beltre did and broken down and laughed along with the rest of us, it probably still would have been funny, but maybe not quite as funny as the fact that Beltre was then punished for this. He was made a martyr for his comedy. So, I mean, Beltre's the best, and he will probably get his 3,000th hit before we speak again. So congrats to Beltre. He's great. He's a Hall of Famer. But this humorous aspect to him and him becoming a a social media star in the later stages of his career is just one of the best baseball developments. We could spend the entire episode probably talking about the on-deck circle, or as it's apparently (laughs) supposed to be referred to, the next batter's box, according to a tweet I saw yesterday. And we shouldn't spend the entire episode on this, but nobody, nobody actually... My girlfriend asked me last night to estimate what percentage of major league players actually stand on the on-deck circle, and I I had to guess like 1%. I think (laughs) there might be like one guy on every team that everyone else just thinks is like a weirdo for actually standing there. And I think the, the main reason that people don't stand there, at least as they publicly express it, is that they don't want to get hit by foul balls and it puts mm-hmm. you in a dangerous area. That was at least the reason that, that Beltre brought up for why he didn't want to stand in the circle. He's mm-hmm. been hit before, so we wanted to move to a, a more extreme angle. The pitcher, mm-hmm. I forgot his name, he was a pitcher I'd never heard of, who was on the mound, said that it wasn't his idea. He didn't even notice that Beltre was standing further away than, than usual, and I'm not sure Beltre was standing further away than usual, but pitcher didn't care. I think usually it's the pitcher who, if anyone would want this to be enforced, and for the record, mm-hmm. there's not even really much of a rule to be enforced in the first place, but it seems like it should be up to the pitcher, and if the pitcher doesn't care, then nobody should care. I can't imagine what was going through Jerry Davis's head when he thought now now is the right time to call attention to this it didn't seem to serve any purpose so i don't know what was going through jerry davis's head when he thought that now now is the time to enforce this non-rule but Mm -hmm. yeah it's just a weird thing that you have to the side of every hitter and every game and when's the last time that anyone ever paid attention to what was happening on deck how does adrian beltray manage to make even that something that raises our (laughs) So maybe we should just move the on-deck circle at this point and put it where people actually stand. It's like this aspirational circle where you're supposed to stand, but no one ever does and no one thinks that you should. It's like the coaches boxes, right? Like the third base coaches box, the third base coach is never in the box. I don't. I mean, should we just move the box to where they actually stand? Is it just that people don't want to be boxed in, that wherever you put the box or the circle, they'll move somewhere else (laughs) because they don't want to be constrained? I don't know what it is, but it's sort of silly to have this designated standing area on the field where no one actually stands. My understanding is the on-deck circle used to be, as I think most everything on the field was, it was designated by chalk or some sort of outline on the ground, which, okay, that makes it a little easier, but players don't want to stand there because they don't want to get hit. But also, on-deck circles now are 
made of rubber. They're like thick rubber yeah. mats and players don't like to stand on them because they're wearing cleats and cleats on rubber is an uncomfortable experience for everyone involved. So players are actively repelled from standing on the circle. So I think no matter where you move it, players aren't going to want to stand on it. It would be as if you covered the bullpen mounds in, I don't know, oil and then expected <laughs> relievers to use the bullpen mounds still. Well, they wouldn't because they'd get oil all over themselves. So they would probably yeah. just relieve somewhere else. So mm -hmm. unless they if they got rid of the rubber mats and turned the on deck circle or next batter's box into just a chalked feature on the ground, maybe you'd get a little more participation. But otherwise, just stop caring. But yeah. I do agree with your initial point that if not for the umpires, then we we wouldn't have these moments. We had some more umpiring festivities just yesterday in Toronto. Mm. I don't know. That's probably crossed your radar. Maybe it didn't. Yeah. I saw that everyone was ejected <laughs> very, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. It was fun to read in the uh, the ESPN play-by-play -play of box score. It just said, Blue Jays catcher Martin ejected for arguing balls and strikes. Blue Jays pitcher Marcus Stroman ejected for arguing balls and strikes. Blue Jays manager John Gibbons ejected for arguing balls and strikes. It was all there laid out in a sequence. I believe Gibbons actually got ejected first. And then Stroman was having some issues with walks as he's had his last few starts. But through pitch walked a guy seemed to express frustration presumably with himself as pitchers are want to do when they mm -hmm. make a mistake and it was a ball so we threw a ball and i think it was a full count and uh and the batter walked and stroman said ah words and the umpire <laughs> immediately tossed god what was the sequence i believe he tossed stroman first and then martin got up and turned around and said i don't even know if he had time to say the entire first word that he was going to say in protest before he too was ejected and it was all very casual uh, again i forget which umpire was involved in this i don't care this any umpire could be a stand-in for this but i don't know if i've ever seen two people ejected for separate incidences but so quickly back to back yeah, I guess it made for a, it made for a good if it's, it's been a good week for umpire gifs or umpire related gifs, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're not taking the fan feedback about how you pronounce gifs into mind. We're not. Why would you bring We're not starting that. <laughs> OK. Uh, do you have do you have anything else? Well, were you going to bring up Michael Blazek? Sure was. He's on the list. <laughs> Michael okay. Michael Blazek. I had to make sure it's Blazek and not Blazek. So, yeah. okay. You want to do it or do you want to get started or should I get started? Well, you can you can do it, I guess. We can we can be kind and gentle because the Nationals were not to him. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we can we can put this uh we can put this one way. First career major league start for Michael Blazek. <laughs> not major league debut, no. at least, but first career major league start. He is uh pitching for the now second place surprise Milwaukee Brewers, pitching against one of the best teams in baseball, the Washington Nationals, and in fewer than three innings, Blazek found a way to allow six home runs. He, I mm. believe he became the ninth pitcher in uh in baseball history to allow six home runs in a game. Nobody has ever allowed more than that. Blazek became the first to allow that many home runs in as few innings as he threw in the same game. Blazik had a quote where, of course, he was he was not thrilled with himself yeah. and uh, and his effort. Although he did say that he quote, I felt like I made some decent pitches, but they were just locked in on everything. Said a Brewers starter, Michael Blazik. Mm -hmm. I threw all the different pitches I have, and they were hitting everything. It was tough. So Blazik very much committed to the perspective that actually he was throwing just fine, but the Nationals just happened to have a historic offensive outburst. But among the things that Blazik did bring up. That he was a uh, he was quite upset about was that he in the uh, in the inning where he allowed back to back to back to back home runs hit by Brian Goodwin.
Goodwin, Wilmer Defoe, somehow Bryce Harper and Ryan Zimmerman. Blazek then two batters later allowed a home run to Anthony Rendon. But in that inning, where he allowed five home runs in the span of six batters, face seven batters in the inning, he was quite upset because he walked Max Scherzer to lead off, which, of course, should be unforgivable. And in the game, Max Scherzer actually went one for one with two walks. He had an <laughs> infield single and he, he walked twice. He is uh, He's not the first pitcher to walk twice this season. I checked. Ty Black actually had a game not too long ago where he walked three times, which I was completely unaware of. But congratulations <laughs> to Ty Black. But yeah, Michael Blazek had one of the worst starts in Major League history. I think we both looked up the worst ever game scores. He wasn't close, but then you end up with these old ass eras interrupting right. temporary stats so if yeah you, he actually happen... wasn't anywhere close right because uh, someone tweeted at both of us yesterday to ask and said that he had like a negative 17 game score mm-hmm. but maybe that's the mlb version of game score which i think is maybe different from the baseball reference version now anyway hmm. according to baseball reference his game score was only 14 which what? is not all that bad at all <laughs> i don't know if well could it be that, A, he did get through two and a third, and he only walked one guy, and he struck out four, and obviously a lot of those home runs were solo because he was giving them up consecutively, so does that make sense? I haven't walked through the game score calculation myself, I'm just looking at his game log on baseball reference but yeah when you do the play index search to look for the worst game scores of all time he is nowhere close to the worst which i don't know if there's some miscalculation here but like when you look at the worst it's like guys who gave up like 17 runs (laughs) and and he did not do that so i guess that puts it all in perspective yeah, worst game score in history as recorded by the play index belongs to George LeClaire from August 16th, 1914. George LeClaire worked a heroic eight innings and he allowed a less heroic 21 <laughs> runs to score. He walked eight without striking out anybody. There was one yeah. unearned run, so to his credit, defense let him down. Hod Lizenby comes in a second worst game score. Oh, did I say George LeClaire's game score was negative 56? <laughs> so this makes for one of those fun lists because the uh, the next name is uh, separated by a substantial amount. So worst game score, negative 56. Second worst game score, negative 35. That's a fun gap. That's a yeah. Blazik-sized gap. Hod Lizenby also threw eight innings, allowed 17 runs, of which three were unearned. Howard Emke is there with a game score of negative 34. There are some good names on this list, but I think my current favorite is tied for 13th place or 12th place, I guess, throwing six innings, allowing 14 runs. Heine Miney which is just fantastic. <laughs> uh, Colby Lewis does show up on this list. You might remember, I had forgotten, Colby Lewis looks to be the worst kind of recent start, certainly from the last 10, 15 years. Colby Lewis, July 10th, 2014, pitching for the Rangers against the Angels, a game the Rangers lost 15-6. to Lewis threw 2.1 innings, and he allowed 13 hits, 13 runs, no walks, one strikeout, one home run, two unearned runs. Mike Oquist is in here. He, uh, about 20 years ago, 1998, August 3rd, he started a game. The Yankees beat the A's 14-1. to Oquist allowed 14 runs in five innings, so it seems like what kept Blazer away from this list is that he was pulled mercifully before things could get really deep because Mm -hmm. everybody on this list seems to have allowed at least like a dozen runs in a game and I would say that would be inconceivable for someone to allow but I guess Colby Lewis did allow 13 AJ Burnett is here having allowed 12 Bill Travers in 1977 second game of a doubleheader that's terrible he allowed 14 (laughs) my goodness Edison Volquez also shows up here yeah I feel like they should 
bring me in as a counselor to pitchers who give up several home runs in a game and I'll just like bring in my my charts and my graphs about the juiced ball and I will show them that the core is higher and the seam height is lower (laughs) and don't worry about it it's not just you it's happening to everyone have you seen the home run rate lately and I'll make them feel better about themselves I should get me on the phone with Michael Blazek and I'll tell him he's just part of a larger trend this is beyond his control Sort of like a sports psychologist role, but yeah. a little more Very polarizing. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, there's go- there are going to be clubhouse civil wars as the pitchers start to get a little <laughs> louder because this isn't stopping. Although I did yeah. check the home run rate in July has not gone up. I kind of expected it to as the summer wore on, but I think things have peaked so far in either May or June. I don't remember which one it was, but July, not there yet, although... Thanks to Michael Blazek, it's getting closer. Yep. (laughs) All right. That's all I had. That's all I had on Blazek for sure. Just going to cross that out and we can move on. Just a real quick player promoted yesterday to the major leagues who I'd never heard of before, but I can't ignore. Aaron Bummer. Aaron Bummer is a (laughs) member of the Chicago White Sox. I'm sure he's been hearing things for his entire life. Mm -hmm. Never mind his career. It's a funny name. He's just going to have a jersey with Bummer and a number on the back of it, which I love. My (laughs) previous... I guess, G-rated favorite name that I wanted to see on a jersey. Haven't seen in the major leagues. In the last round of the 2011 amateur draft, the Oakland Athletics selected a right-handed pitcher named Travis Pitcher. I absolutely yeah. <laughs> loved the idea of the A's drafting Travis Pitcher. He never got out of rookie ball. He had an ERA of close to five. So Travis Pitcher hasn't made it yet. Probably not going to make it. <laughs> I would love a jersey with pitcher on the back, but also a jersey with bummer on the back. I, I feel like yeah. this is the sales here. If the White Sox make this available in any form, which they should, because I'm <laughs> yeah. sure Aaron Bummer would embrace it. He's lived with his name. It's not like he's necessarily a bummer. And if anything, his promotion is an anti-bummer. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely a jersey of a bad team with a bummer on the back. And yep. I did a, did a little search on baseball reference as you do. I did a search for Bummer because I was curious. And Aaron Bummer is, of course, as you might have been able to guess, the only player who shows up with the actual name of Bummer. But then it gets weird. See, in 1920, there was a player named Roy Grimes, Austin Roy mm. Grimes, nickname Bummer. Uh-huh. In 1920 to 1926, there was a player named Ray Grimes, given Oscar Ray Grimes, nickname Bummer. Roy mm. Grimes, 1920, Bummer. Ray Grimes, 1920, Bummer. So that's weird. Made me curious, a little confused. So I decided to take a little spin over to the uh, Society for American Baseball Research, which, of course, has very detailed biographies of, honestly, probably both of us, too. They just have biographies (laughs) of everyone who's vaguely related to baseball. Turns out Ray Grimes and Roy Grimes were twins. They were Uh. twin brothers, both born in Bergholz, Ohio in uh, 1893. I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of detail. Of course, Ray Grimes had the longer major league career, but both Ray and Roy played a bunch of organized professional baseball. They played often at lower levels. So they had a third brother, a younger brother named Clarence. So that's Roy, Ray, and Clarence Grimes. I will read quickly from a section referring to some professional moves. Roy made a move to join Bridgeport, where he worked under brother Ray and alongside a third brother, Kenneth. I'm sorry, forget Clarence. There's Kenneth. So we've got Roy, Ray, and Kenneth. 
The third Grimes played at least one game at second base, but after Roy joined the team, he moved to the outfield and played both left and right. The box score for the August 12th game shows Roy at second base, batting cleanup, Ray at first base and batting fifth, and Kenneth in left field, batting seventh. Ridgeport wow. beat New Haven 3 to nothing. Both Ken and Ray doubled. Roy was hit by a pitch and stole a base. Both Roy and Ray took part in one double play. Ken also played for Bridgeport in 1920. I don't need to read the rest of that sentence. So three Grimes brothers, including two twins who played for the same team in the same game. And what I really wanted to bring up from this section was uh, I will read this one paragraph. Again, this is from Sabre.org. With so many Grimeses, Grimeses, Grimes, whatever, with so many Grimeses in the league and the two of them twins, it's perhaps not surprising that there was an anecdote or two. Bill Lee of the Hartford Current wrote that in 1918, when Ray was with Hartford and Roy was with Bridgeport, the manager of the Bridgeport team spent some time in the lobby of a hotel running over the signs with A. Grimes. The problem was that he was giving all of the signs to the Grimes who played shortstop for Hartford, not the one who played for his own team. So, fantastic. Not a whole lot else that's delightful in the story. There was a rumor at one point that that the Giants acquired the wrong Grimes. Quote, a story circulated at the time that Roy Grimes was purchased by the Giants, said that they'd made a mistake and signed the wrong Grimes, but the Giants didn't need help at first base, and they did at second, so they no doubt got the Grimes they were after. Somebody tweeted at me. Somebody actually brought this to my attention the other day on Twitter and relayed the, I guess, false anecdote that the Giants mm-hmm. acquired the wrong Grimes, which would have been funny because they're twins, but no, yeah. they weren't that backwards. This isn't like the Phillies leaving Domingo Santana off of their protected prospect <laughs> list. So, yeah, the Grimeses, the only other bummers. Also, there is no explanation for the nickname. (laughs) Uh Referring to Ray here, a paragraph concludes, somehow, somewhere along the line, he picked up the nickname Bummer. Well, okay, there you go. Somehow, Hmm. somewhere. Well, the dictionary does list a second definition of Bummer, North American, a loafer or vagrant. So maybe they were lazy. Maybe they moved around a lot. <laughs> I don't. One of those things. It's probably not a compliment. Probably it guess. does not does not seem like a compliment. No. Yeah. Okay. So the only thing I have left for banter is, uh, is we're going back to current real baseball talk because mm-hmm. as we we talked about Michael Blazik and the Brewers lost. They have lost a lot lately. The Brewers are currently, as of this speaking, one and a half games out of first place in the National League Central. Mm. They've fallen behind the Cubs, which we all kind of expect. We've talked about that already, how as soon as things start to correct themselves, when the situation had gone so contrary to expectations that you just let your head get ahead over yourself and you figure that things are now normal. So I think we are both now mentally counting the Brewers out, even though they are Mm -hmm. still within striking distance there. They've really given up a lot of ground. They've given up what, like seven games in the last week and a half or something. Yeah, as bad as the previous few weeks had been good for them. It's been rough. Yeah. So the Brewers are not alone entirely, though. Of course, they've had it worse than anyone lately. But one of the fun current trade deadline stories circulating is that the Twins are looking to sell. And so as you might recall, as being Ben or a listener, the Twins picked up Jaime Garcia the other day. It mm-hmm. took a little time for them to do it. They had some differences in opinion with the Braves. I think the Twins were trying to send a prospect Nick Birdie to the Braves in exchange for Garcia, but the Braves didn't like Birdie's medicals, so they had to go back to the negotiating board and pick somebody else. Who cares how they did it? A different player was traded, went to the Braves. So the Twins picked up rental Jaime Garcia, which made sense. He was a cheap, affordable, one-year rental starter. Twins need as many starters as they can get. So they agreed to get Garcia from the Braves, and it was all well and good. And now the Twins are reportedly shopping Jaime Garcia. (laughs) who is supposed to make his Twins debut, I believe, today. 
And who knows <laughs> if he's actually going to be traded. The last I saw, they were just fielding calls. And, you know, he's he's only in so much demand. He's not really a guy you want starting for you in the playoffs. But it's funny because of how quickly it's happened. But if you look at if you look at the numbers, it makes good sense that the twin situation has changed because yeah, when what how did the playoff odds change between yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't pull up the odds, but I can tell you that when the Twins were first strongly linked, when it looked like they had an agreement just to get Garcia for birdie, the Twins were a game and a half out of the division and one game out of the wild card. So no one's idea uh-huh. of a favorite, but they were close. Definitely in the mix. Why not do it? The Twins are currently six games out of the division and four games out of the wild card. And it's been like four days <laughs> since they right. started trying to acquire Garcia. So the situation has gotten a hell of a lot worse really, really quickly. So in a sense, it's a bad look for the Twins to want to flip Garcia, who in an interview said that he was thrilled to join the Twins playoff chase. Whoops. But I can, <laughs> I hope he had fun. It's uh, <laughs> this playoff chase has involved a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of losing, like 100 mm-hmm. percent losing since Garcia arrived. But yeah, it does make sense in that it sucks for the Twins. I don't think anyone ever really bought them as a playoff team, but their situation has gotten dramatically worse in a very brief amount of time. And while you issue whatever response you're going to issue, I'm going to pull up their how their playoff odds have actually changed because now I'm curious. Yeah, please let me know. I, I hope he does get traded just because it would be a funny <laughs> story that we can retell in the future. But yeah, I mean... At this time of year, we always hear teams say like, oh, well, this week will determine what we do. And it sounds crazy that a week could determine whether you are going to be a buyer or seller, which seems like this massive decision that should either be clear one way or the other. And yet often when we're talking about the playoff race, we're talking about odds fluctuations that actually are meaningful if you just... If you lose five games in a row, if you win five games in a row, if your division rivals or wildcard rivals go on a run or go on a slump, it really does affect things. And I mean, I don't know how often it actually really changes what you think about the course of your franchise and like like your long-term plans, but it could certainly affect how you approach this, this last three months of the season and if you're just going to stand pat and hope for the best or try to get what you can. So have I vamped enough for you to look <laughs> at the playoff odds change? You nailed it. So July 22nd, the Twins playoff odds hit a relative maxima at 17%. Still not great, but yeah. They were close to the Royals. They are currently sitting at 6%, so they've lost nearly wow. two-thirds of their chance of making the playoffs, depending on how you want to interpret it. One of the problems, well, I guess they've run into a few problems where the Indians are playing better and the Royals just can't lose. So it's not just about the Twins' distance from a playoff position, but also the number of teams in between them and said playoff position, and they have just sunk. So I don't know. It looks like the Twins are supposed to face the A's in a game that nobody will watch tonight at 7 to 5 p.m. Pacific time. Garcia against Dan Gossett, where would you put the odds that Jaime Garcia actually starts this game for the Twins at this recording? I would say 70%. Yeah, I'll put it at like 70, 75%. I figure Garcia could move, but he's, I doubt he's anyone's top priority. Mm-hmm. So why not just the only downside there is, well, if you are a team that wants Jaime Garcia and you let him get another start, that's one fewer start he can make for you. So whatever, we'll see. We have a trade. We have a breaking yeah. news trade. Yeah. And guess who made it? <laughs> Not that surprising. <laughs> you can sing the song if you want to. Uh, I'll leave that to Michael. But yes, Jerry Depoto has made another trade. This seems like a, a weird one on the face of it because it's between the Mariners and the Rays who are 
both wildcard contenders in the American League, and Mm -hmm. the M's have traded Steve Ciszek to the Rays for Erasmo Ramirez. What do we make of this? I don't I don't know what to make of this. Okay, well, let's see. What do we got? C-Sheck is in the his last year of team control. He is a funky right-handed reliever. Erasmo Ramirez has another two and a half years of team control. So he's uh, he's one of those control pitchers that the Mariners have uh, badly wanted. Uh, the problem is that he's not very good, but he's not mm-hmm. terrible. He's very small. And uh, maybe most memorably, he's already been a Mariner. And the Mariners yeah. got frustrated with him and sent him to Tampa Bay in a, another trade. And it looks like maybe he's kind of worn out his welcome there. He's fine. I don't want to suggest that he's a he's a bad pitcher, but neither he nor Ciszek seems to be anything particularly great. But Ciszek, mm-hmm. I think, is probably still murder on right-handed hitters, as he's been for most of his life. And Ramirez is just another swingman as the Mariners tried to recover from having lost Drew Smiley and essentially Hisashi Ibakuma in what was supposed to be a competitive season. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's anything too sexy to analyze here, except that this is just another trade of Gary DePoto trying to acquire a cost-controlled, extremely mediocre potential starting pitcher. (laughs) Yeah. And the Rays have been busy. They haven't done anything all that exciting either, but they have been making some moves. So they have Lucas Duda now. They have Steve Ciszek now. They have uh, what you 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 wanted to write about, Chaz Rowe. Chaz Rowe. Yeah. Your favorite. So the Rays are uh, reloading in a Rays kind of way, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. They've, uh, they also, like, what? They added Trevor Pluff, which uh-huh. cares, and they added, I don't know, some other veteran a few weeks ago. I don't remember who it was, but yeah, the Rays have added a bunch of short term assets, but without really giving much of anything up. I think Erasmus Ramirez is the steepest price they've paid so far as they try to overhaul their entire bullpen. I wrote about I wrote a very short thing about Lucas Duda on Fangraphs yesterday just after the trade happened because we're on trade coverage and whatnot. Put up, I don't know, 600 words about, okay, here's Lucas Duda. He's a slugger. He's got his warts and he's got his pluses, whatever, going to the race. And somebody left a comment that said that, well, Jeff, you really mailed it in on this one. But as I thought about (laughs) it, it's like, how could you not? You can't you can't (laughs) sex up like, oh, the Rays (laughs) traded nothing to get Lucas Duda for two months. There's nothing you can do with that. It was a struggle for me because I looked it and I thought how could I make this readable but sometimes you just sometimes there's no winning a battle you know yeah. you have you have a topic you think I just need to get this done because there's no there's no traffic here there's no reason this is just a fart in the wind but that uh yeah something had to be written and the Rays got a good ish hitter against right-handed pitchers and that's it there's nothing sexy about it but the Rays are very much alive in the wild card race mm-hmm. they are close they have Kevin Kiermaier coming back and in three minor league appearances so far in AAA Chaz Rowe has faced 11 batters and struck out six of them so mm. Yeah. Lights out reliever. I'm not saying that he's as good as Craig Kimbrell. <laughs> you tried to spice up your Echeverria trade reaction when the race <laughs> acquired him, and uh, he has hit 259, 274, 296 <laughs> in 84 plate appearances for the race so far. So <laughs> Tried to sell him as a guy who could hit better, and he's hit so yeah. much worse. So, you know... <laughs> Eyes on Echeverria. I was yeah. saying there were reports coming out yesterday that the Rays were interested in potentially trading Brad Miller or Tim Beckham because of the, the newfound depth. And they have Echeverria. But it seems like, well, maybe just get rid of Echeverria because it turns out he's bad. <laughs> not that yeah. I want to close the book on him quite yet, but it's not it's not working out like they probably imagined that it would. Mm-hmm. Ah, gosh, I don't know. Is there? <laughs> I feel like there's probably just more trade stuff we can keep talking about. Like there's 
what the Mariners are apparently going hard after Sonny Gray, even though I'm not sure they have the assets to actually do anything there. And I don't know, there was a there was another name that was uh, on the tip of my tongue, but I've forgotten it now. So instead, I guess for now we can just move into the thing that uh, the Friday topic that again we have about ten minutes to discuss. <laughs> and I wanted to do this. You brought up the Adrian Beltre on deck circle hilarity, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about that. There's no there's no better way to put this, but I was thinking about that in the shower the other day, and. <laughs> For some reason, I had gone to bed and I was thinking about books. I have never really had a strong desire to write a book. You and Sam have, in a sense, both motivated me to write a book and also done the opposite of that because you you wrote an excellent baseball book, but you took the best topic. So there's there's nothing left. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's there are no good baseball topics left to be explored that are in any way superior to the one that you already wrote up and yeah. you did an, an excellent job of it. So congratulations, you have Thanks. destroyed all motivation for anybody else to write a baseball book. But I was thinking about, okay, if I were to write a baseball book, and let's say I wanted to write a baseball book about a a current baseball player, which baseball player in Major League Baseball today best lends himself to what would be a successful and engaging book? Mm. And as you might be able to guess, the name that I came up with was Adrian Beltre. I think that... I think that when Adrian Beltre's career is over, I'm not actually going to do it, but I feel like if I were a respected journalist who had a history of writing books, I would get in touch with Adrian Beltre's people, which are probably just Adrian Beltre having sock puppets in both of his hands and (laughs) them representing him as his agents. But I feel like I would want to spend time with Adrian Beltre, get to know him and and write a biography of Adrian Beltre's professional baseball career, because I'm not sure this is a point for us to discuss, but I'm not sure that there's a player I'd personally rather read about. And I'm not sure there's a player who's had more go on than Adrian Beltre has from the start of his career, given yeah. that there was a time when he nearly died from an appendectomy yeah. and all of the stuff that he's been through. I don't know if it's, you kind of need videos or image representations of, of Beltre throughout his career. So I don't know what you can do with that in like a book format. I don't know if you can have like Kindle books that have videos and GIFs in them because otherwise it's just like an extremely long form article that no one's going to read all the way through. But Beltre would be the name at the top of my list as I think about a player who would best lend himself to a to an engaging book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I am probably going to be writing about Adrian Beltre sometime very soon. And I don't know exactly what I'm going to be writing about, but I am fascinated by how the perception of Adrian Beltre has changed so completely in the last several years where he was seen as a guy who was disappointing, who failed to recapture the magic of his 2004 Dodgers season. Then he went to the Mariners and he wasn't hitting 48 homers again. And so people thought that it was a bad signing. And obviously, he has just become better in that he has just been unbelievable after the age of 30. He's been maybe a more consistently good hitter, certainly, than he had been to that point in his career, which is unusual. And I think we have all kind of caught up to how good Adrian Beltre was all along, because he really was. Like, not only did he arrive in the majors super early, but even when his bat was not all that great and not all that consistent, he was consistently valuable just because he is maybe the best third baseman of all time, fielding-wise, or, or certainly in the top 
up, I don't know, two. So our defensive metrics and appreciation of defensive metrics have caught up with how good he was all along. Our appreciation of park factors and how he was playing in parks that were difficult for him have caught up to how good he was all along. And so now it's just a slam dunk consensus. It's not even like he needs the 3,000th hit or the 500th homer or any of these traditional milestones to cement his case. I think everyone agrees that he is a deserving Hall of Famer, but that wasn't the case when he was 30. That wasn't the case when he was... I don't know. I think in my article, I might try to pinpoint exactly when that became the case, when we all realized that Adrian Beltre was a Hall of Famer, both because we just got smarter about how good he had been and because he just hasn't aged. And if anything has gotten better with age, which has continued this season. So it is a fascinating career and he's been a valuable player for three different teams. I mean, you know, over the long term, obviously he had a great season with the Red Sox too. So yeah, just a fascinating career. And when you add all the other stuff about him becoming a clubhouse mentor and leader later in his career and just all the incredibly shareable stuff that he does on the field, whether it's with Andrus or with not wanting his head touched or with falling to one knee as he swings or with moving the on-deck circle, whatever it is, he is, I guess, kind of like the reigning... I don't know. Is he like the most beloved player? Like you, you have like Bartolo Colon still. You have Ichiro still hanging around in that role of elder statesman slash most accomplished player in Ichiro's case. But Beltre is definitely the heir apparent to those guys if he's not already at the top of the list. I think there's a strong sentiment out there that Ichiro has been overrated for his, uh, the bulk of his career. And of course, I disagree with that. I think Ichiro has been a wizard, but there is still a lot of Ichiro pushback that's out there. So Mm -hmm. as much as I think a lot of people do find Etro to be a lovable and unique specimen, I don't think that the adoration there is quite so widespread and unanimous. With Bartolo Colon, I know it's there, but I feel like for a lot of people, it kind of comes from a cruel place where it's like, huh, look at the big fat guy, which... Mm -hmm. Whatever. People still like him, but I think that there's it's a it's a little more it's a little meaner on yeah. some deeper base level. And with Beltre, I think that it's just genuine. I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure there are people out there who just can't stand Adrian Beltre. And of course, when you play for a team like the Red Sox or when you've been on a contending team with the Rangers for so long, people on contending teams tend to make enemies because they are good and you yeah. you want your team to defeat the contending team. So that I'm sure there are people who don't like Adrian Beltre out there. However, I, I don't know. I feel like he's I can't think of someone who is more widely adored. And this is coming from, again, that sort of social media bubble where everyone on Twitter loves Adrian Belcher because he does things that are so eminently tweetable. I don't know how people's parents feel about Adrian Belcher. They actually probably don't know who Adrian Belcher is. So that's fine. Parents, you're missing out. But I was pulling up some numbers because one of the things so remarkable about Adrian Beltre is, of course, how he's performed as he's gotten older. He signed sort of that pillow contract after his Mariners mm-hmm. stint, and, and it was an open question how much Beltre was going to be able to do with his talent. And since turning 30, Adrian Beltre, according to Baseball Reference, has the 19th highest, so yeah. essentially looking for uh, highest post-30 wins above replacement. Right. And for position players, according to Baseball Reference, he ranks in 19th place, just barely behind Ozzie Smith 
Hamilton, Charlie Geringer, and Eddie Collins, Luke Appling, etc. So Beltre there is at 51 wins above replacement, where only eight players have cleared 60. So Beltre mm-hmm. looks good on baseball reference. He looks a little worse on fan graphs. This would be a defensive thing, but he's still in 28th place all time for post 30 wins above replacement. Again, just among position players, but it's a good list. The two names behind him are Kaya Stremski and Willie Stargell. Two names in front of him are Frank Robinson and Bob Johnson. There's Jim Edmonds, Stripper Jones, Wade Boggs, Edgar Martinez, etc. This is a list of almost, well, it is a list of exclusively great players because, of course, I searched for players who were great. So that's mm-hmm. kind of a selection bias right there, if you want to say. But people have so many anecdotes about things that Adrian Beltre has done, like when he was recovering from appendix surgery that didn't go very well when he was a teenager, he was playing third base with a colostomy bag under his uniform, and you just go back to the beginning, and when you say that you're probably going to write about Adrian Beltre soon, it stresses me out a little bit because it's almost overwhelming because I don't know how you write about Adrian Beltre without trying to include everything, and there's yeah. just so much, that's why I think he lends himself to to an incredible, an incredible book, because if you're going to write one page on Beltre, you're probably going to want to write 250 yeah right well i will read the adrian (laughs) beltray story as told to jeff sullivan or whatever you end up calling it yeah you should uh you should do that someone's got to do it it's probably not going to be called the adrian beltray story but uh i don't know if testicular torsion really has a a ring to it that people are looking for (laughs) yeah i'll give you the rights if you want to co-author then we can just claim it here on the air and then we can just deter everybody else but well i don't know i don't know if if Beltre is the kind of guy who would want a biographer kind of following him around, but I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah, it's at this point, it's also unclear whether you even would need to follow someone around, given how many Beltre stories are already out there and right. in the public sphere. You could just kind of accumulate, do the aggregation thing, and then slap a book together without Adrian Beltre even knowing about it. Mm-hmm. Take that, Adrian Beltre. Wrote a book <laughs> about you. Didn't even know about it. <laughs> Put your picture right on the front. Thank you, Getty Images. I don't know. Is it, who... Of course, there. I, I'm sure there are books that could be written about any one of those players who has a non-traditional beginning, or they came from the indie leagues, or maybe they had to go through a bunch of surgeries. Like even what Johnny Ventures could have a book written about him because I think he's had yeah. Tommy John surgery like five times or something right. absurd. It's mm-hmm. like maybe at some point, maybe at some point, you the message sinks in. But you know, he's got what some people would describe as courage. So there's mm-hmm. there's a book there. There are any number of great stories could be written about. Every single one of these players is is exceptional and extraordinary, and even mm-hmm. the players in in the lower minors or even in indie ball, as you know, there's a book yeah. to be written about Josh Vitters or mm-hmm. you know the Salina, whatever their name is, the Stockade, <laughs> the yep. Salina Stockade. You'll you'll be documenting them shortly, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I still I have thought about it for a good amount of time, and and Beltre remains at the top of my list. Can you think of anyone who might have a more compelling story? Series of stories, I guess. Yeah, I mean, other than maybe Ichiro, just because Ichiro's hilarious and wise and because he played in Japan and he has been amazing in the majors in a completely different way from anyone else and he seems to just go about baseball in a different way from most players. So uh, he's been like an international celebrity in a way that most players have not so an Ichiro book like with Ichiro's full participation or just Ichiro writing a book would be great I think but yeah I, don't, I mean I don't know that 
There are probably lots of like inspiring off the field stories that I'm not even aware of or just am not thinking of at this moment, but combination of personality and career and baseball story, it is very hard to top Beltre at this point. I guess the last thing we should mention on this podcast before it ends and just ending the Beltre segment right there is something I forgot to mention earlier. David Price is hurt again. Yeah, not just his feelings. Not just his feelings, but also his elbow, which is <laughs> arguably more important than his feelings. Mm-hmm. So the American League is being overturned. Overturned? No, that sounds like there's some sort of mutiny. I don't know. <laughs> Things are changing in the American League. David Price, of course, missed the beginning of the year with an elbow problem, and then he didn't have surgery. Then he worked his way back, but it turns out he was diagnosed with a partial tear, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, partial tear of the UCL. Those don't heal. By themselves, they, if anything, tend to do the opposite of that. David Price's elbow seems like it's done the opposite of that. So while I don't think I have anything clever to say about David Price right now, the reality is that when pitchers are diagnosed with elbow problems, they tend to not get better until there is pretty significant intervention. And if you look at the Red Sox and you take away David Price, things are getting interesting again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are exceptions to that. Of course, Masahiro Tanaka continues to pitch and now is pitching pretty well on his partially torn UCL for years now after everyone said at the time, just get the surgery because you'll have to get the surgery. Well, maybe he won't have to get the surgery. I don't know. But, you know, you see guys maybe come back after longer periods of rest than Price had and PRP injections and all these other therapies that people are trying. So it's not an ironclad rule, but certainly when you see a guy miss time with an arm issue, that is the greatest risk factor when it comes to predicting who will have arm issues in the future. And yeah, Price has been pretty good, okay, since he came back and started pitching in 11 starts, but not like old Price, not even like 2016 Price. So it seems as if his control has been off relative to most recent years in his career, and he's just not quite the same guy. So not great to have him pitching at less than full strength, probably even worse not to have him pitching at all. And yeah, I mean, I kind of thought that the Red Sox were going to run away with it there when they finally pulled ahead of the Yankees, as had been anticipated. But as we speak now, they're only half a game ahead of them. And it's just never really come together for them the way that I think a lot of people thought it would in the spring. So I don't know if they still have moves to make. I don't know if this shakes up the trade market for the top starters available with just days remaining and with Darvish and Gray and people like that being shopped already. I don't know whether the Red Sox enter that discussion in a way that they wouldn't have if Price had been healthy, but it should be a fairly exciting conclusion, I guess, to this starter sweepstakes. And we'll probably talk about that next time we talk, I guess, about how it actually happened. But the the Darvish conundrum, as Dave Cameron wrote in a post for Fangraphs, is a compelling one. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. This would be when the Yankees step in and trade for the players that the Red Sox want again, which would be funny. As has been mentioned, the Red Sox currently in the lead of the American League East by a half game. But according to base runs, which is a Fangraphs metric that they have up that essentially tries to measure how what a team's record ought to be if you strip away luck, which you know, you know how these things work. Mm-hmm. The Red Sox, by their base runs record, should be 54 and 49, and the Yankees should be 62 and 38. So pretty strong argument there for the Yankees to continue to build. Pretty strong evidence that the Yankees have actually been better than the Red Sox. And now the yeah. Red Sox could be down their second best starter. So things to mm-hmm. pay attention to as we end this podcast. All right. We will talk next week. 
you can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Andy Carl, Brett Kedkar, Brett O'Neill, Will Cohane, and Mick Reinhard. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. Now at 6,250 members. If you're not one of them, you're missing out. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And you can email me and Jeff at podcast.fangraphs.com or message us through Patreon if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. We will be back next week. We'll talk about the trade deadline. I'll be in Salina, Kansas, seeing the stockade who are now 9 and 55. Talk to you then. No life from Paloma to Rose Sometimes I feel like I